Welcome to a recording from a Latrobe Asia public event. The vibrant fashion styles of Tokyo are notable for their colour and playfulness, and the shoujo culture, girls, draws on anime, manga, literature, film and cosplay. The distinctive fashion movement has evolved to embrace culture and identity, and in this panel we will hear from four experts about shoujo and kawaii cute studies. Dr. Lucy Fraser from the University of Queensland is a specialist on Japanese fairy tales and girl culture. Dr. Emerald L. King from La Trobe University is a Japanese literature scholar and cosplayer. Dr. Masafumi Monden is an expert on Japanese fashion from the University of Sydney. And Megan Catherine Rose from the University of New South Wales specialises in kawaii fashion communities in Tokyo. The session was chaired by Madman MC and cosplayer Kay. It was co-hosted by Latrobe Asia and the Japan Foundation in Sydney. It was recorded on 1st of November 2018 at the State Library of Victoria. There's an associated photo exhibition at the Writer's Block Cafe at the Latrobe University Library in Bandura until January 2019. Konbama. Thanks everyone for coming. I am uh, Professor James Walker. I'm head of the Department of Languages and Linguistics at Latrobe University. Uh, La Trobe University and La Trobe Asia are hosting this event. Um, I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land, the peoples of the Kulin Nation on whose land we're meeting, and I'd like to uh, pay my respects to their elders past and present. So this evening we're gathered together to uh, have an interesting panel discussion on how Kauai invaded downtown Tokyo, uh, Tokyo Fruits, 20 years of street fashion. I see a lot of people have come uh, in the spirit of the event. Um, so I'm going to start by introducing the panel briefly, and then they're going to talk uh, about uh, their own biographies. So we have here tonight, um, I'll go from right to left, we have uh, Emerald King from La Trobe University. We have um, Masafumi Monden from the University of Technology, Sydney. We have uh, Kay from Madman Entertainment. We have uh, Megan Russell from University of New South Wales, Sydney, and we have Lucy Fraser from the University of Queensland. So I'll pass it over to them to carry on the discussion. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, James, and I'm going to be very rude and start the discussion about myself. Um, so uh, my name's Emerald. I started teaching uh, at La Trobe this year, so Melbourne's very new and exciting, and if you're interested in uh, Japanese, I'd, I'd love to, to see you sometime in my class. Uh, and I work on uh, cosplay, kimono, and Japanese literature. And welcome. <laughs> Thanks, James. Um, my name is Masafumi, and I'm from um, Sydney, the University of Technology, Sydney. And I am a research fellow in the School of Design, and also I teach in international studies. And what I do is to research about Japanese popular culture, fashion, and art in particular. Thank you, Thank you James, as well, for introducing us here today. Um, my name is Kay, and I work at Madman Entertainment um, here in Melbourne. We're Australia's largest distributor of um, Japanese anime and manga. Um, I also have cosplayed for over 18 years, and I've represented Australia once in the World Cosplay Summit, and I will be representing Australia again next year, hopefully, to win Australia the world title. Um, <laughs> 
Yeah. Hopefully, yeah. Um, and I am here today uh, to uh, chair the discussion with these lovely intellectuals. So I'm looking very much forward to doing that this evening. Hi, my name is um, Megan. I'm from UNSW Sydney. Um, for the past seven years, I've been doing a research project with Harajuku girls in Tokyo. Um, I specialize in styles like Lolita fashion, fairy K, Jakora, and um, smaller styles like Hime Deco. Um, I also teach at UNSW in a completely unrelated area um, around policy and governmentality. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay, over to me. Hello, uh, I'm Lucy and I work as a lecturer in Japanese at the University of Queensland. Um, my background is in English literature and Japanese literature and from there I kind of uh, fell into the field of fairy tale studies uh, where I then began to work with literature but also with illustrated books and a bit of manga, anime, film, television. Um, and I've published a book on Japanese and English retellings of Hans Christian Andersen's fairy tale, The Little Mermaid. And I've been working a lot in the field of Japanese girl studies, particularly with um, some of my lovely panellists here. Uh, and I'm very, very happy to be here tonight and to, um, I hope, in the end, hear some really interesting questions from all of you. And thanks also for the introduction, James. Well, now that we know who each of us are, I'd like to jump straight into the discussions and start off with the first question of what the event is, and that is, how did Kawaii invade downtown Tokyo? And I'd like to first throw this to Masafumi to explain what is Kawaii. So Kawaii can be translated in English as cute, but it has so much more meanings than what cute is. So it can be used to describe many, many things. But in... Um, Usually, it is used to describe like a cute, um, vulnerable, uh, kind of soft um, and childlike object and styles of fashion aesthetics or like behaviors. And particularly when it is used to describe fashion, uh, it's like boys, uh, uh, bright colors for boys and lacy or frills for girls. And speaking of kawaii fashion, Megan, I believe you would like to sort of expand on that idea of kawaii fashion. So um, with my particular participants, so I spoke with um, 23 Lolitas, Fairy K practitioners, decorers and um, Hime Deco among many other different styles. Um, they didn't particularly identify kawaii as a gendered thing, nor did it particularly have to be frilly or childlike. Um, for them, kawaii is a more a concept of adoration and, and playfulness. So um, one of the key things I was trying to investigate is sort of why they were wearing these cute things and why they were so interested in kawaii as a concept. And so one of the reasons I think um, it, it sort of invaded downtown Tokyo in terms of Harajuku is the um, performance space that Harajuku provides. So in part... Um, if you look at some of the images that are playing behind us, um, some of the clothing is upcycled and is one-offs um, and it's a performance of originality and creativity and being able to pull together somehow these completely disparate objects. 
but also um, people that wear kawaii fashion are mostly drawn to incorporating objects that they love and um, adorning their bodies with these things as part of trying to become closer to that which they want to be. So most kawaii practitioners have something that they wish they could become like, and sometimes this is gendered, like princesses or dolls, um, usually something that is adored, but it can also be completely disparate, like robots or 80s music or, I don't know, insert uh, Furbies. It could be something completely uh, unexpected. Um, and so these objects are a way of them trying to become closer to this other space in a way that is tangible. So you might wear a Barbie necklace because you want to be more like Barbie and living her California dream for whatever reason. Um, yeah, so I think kawaii is definitely, as Masafumi says, it's quite um, diverse and different. It really depends on which scholar you're speaking to and which body of work that they're working with. Yes, so this talk today that we're um, here is prompted by as street fashion and shoujo culture. Now, some people in the audience uh, may be familiar with these terms from watching anime or reading manga or your own fashion choices. And I'd just like to ask in the audience, just put up your hand if you know what shoujo culture is or street fashion. Oh, look, our, our job is done. We can go home now. Yay! <laughs> we'll get you guys up here and go down. Yeah, so there's quite a majority of people here who are living in that culture or identify um, and have their own sort of knowledge of what it is. I'd like to throw it to the panel of what do you think street fashion and shoujo culture is? I might Listen. do the shoujo part. Yes. Um, <laughs> and like a good high school... Um, class presenter, I'll start with a definition from the Oxford English Dictionary. Um, because the word shoujo was actually added to the Oxford English Dictionary in 2011, which is a quite um, interesting event alongside shonen, its counterpart, meaning boy. Um, and their definition here is a genre of Japanese comics and animated films aimed primarily at a young female audience, typically characterised by a focus on personal and romantic relationships. Um, I think all of us here would certainly have a much broader definition of shoujo than that. Uh, the, I see that it was added into the Oxford Dictionary as a response to the influx of shoujo manga and anime from Japan into English. Um, so where do I start? <laughs> uh, I'll just mention briefly one of the really important theorists that uh, many of us are working with to understand shoujo, and her name's Honda Musko. Um, and she defines shoujo through um, an onomatopoeia, a, a sound word, hirahira, which kind of um, describes and captures a fluttering movement of things like ribbons and frills, kind of moving with the girl who wears them or moving in the breeze. And I think maybe um, the other speakers might pick up on that to talk about how that brings us closer to um, fashion. But... Um, I suppose what I'd really add to that, what's really important for my definition of shoujo is that um, it's very closely related to, for me, to genre and text. Uh, to, it has a long history in both translated and local novels, translated novels such as Anne of Green Gables or Little Women um, and local Japanese authors who were very successful such as Yoshia Nobuko writing around the 1920s onwards. Um, and so there are other words in Japanese for girl. 
There's something like onanako, which purely just means a girl child, uh, and other kind of sex category gender words. And so for Shoujo, for me, really conjures up this image of stories, of narrative, of text, of illustration and image. Um, and for that reason, and something we might come back to a bit later, um, we can look at the shoujo as a perspective that people can adopt and people who aren't necessarily physically girls themselves. So people outside of that group who would be identified on documentation as girls um, might feel close to and access this as a kind of perspective or identity. <laughs> yes, so we've um, got this knowledge of what shoujo is, but we want to sort of talk about what does that mean to street fashion as well? I think um, so one, one of the... Um, outcomes that will come from this talk, which I'm, I'm recording at the moment um, so that I can note it down later on, um, is where uh, been working on, on the girl uh, and shoujo culture and we all have a slightly different usage of, of the definition that, that Lucy just gave in our work based on the texts that we use. Um, so I, I have a literature training, but more and more I've been working on cosplay and particularly on uh, the costumes that cosplayers make. And I've been focusing a lot on, on magical girls, which uh, for I think a, a lot of Australians, a lot of, of people who, who are madman uh, audience, a lot of people who come along to events like Supernova or Madfest, that's what we think of when we think of, of a shoujo, is a maho shoujo in, in some ways. Um, and in terms of cosplay, I think Sailor Moon is, is the one thing that we all kind of cosplay no matter who we are, uh, regardless of if we go for one of the main scouts or if we go for um, something quite serious or if we just do it as, as a bit of a laugh. There's a, a great tradition, particularly in American cosplay, of um, very hirsute men um, tying ribbons in their bows and, and um, wearing these tiny white leotards and little frilly skirts and high heels as, as part of their playing around with this ideal of, of the maho shoujo. So for me, the work that I do with shoujo um, comes to do with the way that it's used by uh, costumers. Um, and I think we'll, we'll come back to this uh, in, in, in a lot, but I want to say from the very outcome that, that cosplay and street fashion are two very distinct things. So that's my starting point. But when I'm talking about street fashion, I'm really interested to see how um, it's something that comes from the wearer, as Meg was saying, that's something that they want to become close to. So there are some overlaps that particularly to an untrained or an outsider eye, look the same. But hopefully tonight what we can do and what, what we can all kind of nut out, because this is a... We, we've got, these, we've got these, these cheat sheets, but we don't actually know what each other has written down. Um, so this is actually a conversation and hopefully it won't get too... Um, it won't come to fisticuffs, I hope. It might. We're all very passionate. Try me. <laughs> I know, I know how sharp those spikes are. They're very, they're very sharp. I'm not and I've touching got sharp them. shoes too, so um, sharp. So, so, so it's something that that hopefully we can kind of further our own definition. And and if you have any questions, do please uh, save them for the end, and and we can all work through this together. 
So, Masa, you come from a fashion background and it, it, we've just heard about the, the meaning of the shoujo and that crossover. What's your perspective on it? Um, to start with shoujo, I use shoujo as a kind of form or style or aesthetic. Um, so a kind of like ideal girlish identity and like kind of formal style that um, visually communicate that idea. So as Lucy has um, explained to you, like these um, fashion items such as frills or ribbons or lace um, that often are used to kind of construct and visually communicate this girlish identity of shoujo. Now, Megan, with the fashion overlapping with that shoujo culture, how do you think that integrates as part of the identity? Well, I think in general, um, those particular practitioners that prescribe to the shoujo identity or engage in some way with shoujo texts um, are very much trying to engage with the idea of the ideal girl, as Masafumi says. So as a disclaimer, my work does slot into some of the stuff that Masafumi raises in his book that I then pick up. Um, one of one um, researcher in the States, Anne Nugan, um, has written um, a paper on Japanese elitists compared to North American elitists. And the distinct quality of Japanese elitists is that they like to play this idea of feeling girly, um, and I was very interested in my research and understanding what does this feeling girly actually mean. Um, and Nugent defines this as a kind of um, affect or emotion or experience. So it's like feeling happy, feeling girly is an equivalent to that. Um, in general, my understanding is that participants are looking to this ideal girl um, in terms of in the narrative, how much adoration and love is given to this character. So, for example, if we take a princess you know, the princess is often not depicted carrying out political acts or gov good governance, as I would know as a lecturer in governmentality. Um, you know, she's not exactly the most responsible uh, governing body, but she's more, you know, invested instead of things like, you know, luxury, um, extravagant clothes. She's got, you know, animals befriending her. Everyone seems to love her. So it's this idea of, one, feeling girly, but also, two, this desire and longing to feel adored, which, you know, when you think about it, reverse engineering, that's actually quite sad to think that these people feel like they currently aren't worthy of being adored as it is right now. And this is, to fully disclosure, this is a distinct um, quality in Japanese leaders. This isn't um, necessarily found in the West. I think it's a different pattern of affect and um, admiration for that group as well. Um, but that's my understanding with the connection of Shoujo and I found with my comparative study of um, between the texts and the actual practitioners. So you've brought up a really interesting point about the what's written in the text and what the practitioners are actually feeling. So do you think Shoujo is a lived reality or a representational concept? I think it's both. Um, I think in general if we think about everybody, whether they're kawaii or, or not kawaii, um, you know, Irving Goffman writes that um, every performance of the self is aspirational. So, for example, if you wanted to be a good student, you might come to class early, you might bring all the right stationery, you might perform the role of a good student and do the things you think will make you a good student. Um, and that might convince yourself that you are, in fact, a good student and you might perform well, but you may not. It doesn't guarantee the outcome. It's aspiring to become something else that you're not. And so I find that um, even though shoujo has its own body of text and has its own, you know, 
um, famous manga or it could be spin-off things like dolls like Likachan and so on. Um, at the same time, these girls try to take on part of this as their um, lived reality and it's part of their everyday. So for them it is real. It's not a costume. This is who they are and who they want to be just as much as we every day in our lives try to prescribe to be or aspire to be, um, you know, whoever we want to be. Yeah. Lucy, do you have yeah. some comments on that? Um, no, I think that's a really wonderful explanation of it. And I mentioned the idea of girl being an identity rather than um, maybe perhaps a physical body. Um, and I just wanted to add, firstly, that I'm citing a Japanese essayist and literary critic called Takahara Eiri, who um, brings up, who develops this idea of girl consciousness and talks about the power and also the limitations of thinking like a girl, so accessing this identity as a way to see the world differently. Um, and he says freedom and arrogance are the two characteristics that particularly define the attitude of thinking like a girl. Um, but I also, without <laughs> launching us into a um, kind of deep philosophical discussion that I'm not really qualified to continue, um, <laughs> I really question the idea of what's reality and what's, um, I can't remember the other word we use, but perhaps fantasy um, in terms of identity because um, as, a, as a bookworm and a reader and a TV fanatic, um, I inhabit the world of fiction just as much as I inhabit um, the physical space that I am occupying right now and that's a huge part of my identity and my my perspective and I don't think it's always I mean and I don't think I'm disagreeing with anything you said here actually no um <laughs> yeah but I don't think it's um some things that we're always trying to talk about the real world I don't think yeah. can be particularly useful in understanding people and what they like and what they do well it's more about um bringing people back into um, your own understanding of social reality. So, you know, in my, you know, this hypothetical, like in my social reality, everybody wears pants and shirts and they don't walk around in frilly dresses. So you're not prescribing to my reality and I feel uncomfortable with that. So I'm going to challenge, aren't you off with the fairies? Aren't you wearing cosplay? It's, that's the social logic behind it that Irving Goffman writes about. Mm. I think um, one one point that you've you've both brought up, which is important to a lot of the research that I do and also for this uh, for this talk. So some of the images um, that are on the, the slides are to do with an exhibition um, that's on at the La Trobe campus at Bandura at the moment. And it, they're very much um, located in the streetscape of Harajuku, of, of Tokyo. Um, and for a lot of the research that I do on shoujo culture, it's limited to a certain space or a time or a place. Um, and to go back to Honda, Honda is a person that we come back to a lot. We can't have a conversation without her name coming up. Basically. I, I think yeah. <laughs> I, I suspect somewhere there's a bingo card that gets pulled out whenever on wherever we're on a panel together to say, did they talk about Honda? Did they say hira hira? <laughs> um, but she talks about um, girlhood as as being an enclosed room, a kind of enclosed cocoon, um, almost like, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a period of, of, of safety and metamorphoses that, that goes on. And I think that's a, 
a really uh, important thing to think about is where, for example, if you perform a good, if you perform being a good student, where are you performing that? If you perform being a bookworm, where are you performing that? And is it something that you're doing for yourself or for somebody to see? If you're dressing in a certain style, if you're putting on a costume of clothing, and by and in this case, I mean costume as a set of clothes, not a Halloween costume. Topical reference. Um, you know, it, it's a thought out thing that you do for a set time and place and possibly even audience. And that audience could just be yourself. And yeah, I think it's, I think it's an important thing to, to add to the discussion. Yeah, so you're all academics and scholars working on Japan or in Japanese studies. How is girl culture in the concepts which we've just discussed today how relevant is that outside of Japan? Who would like to? You're, you're smirking, Meg. Go I'm, on. I'm thinking international girl gang, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Great concept. International girl gang, yes. So, um, you know, I think I looked at my answer, it's going to go in a couple of different directions. So, I think, first of all, um, there is a very large group of um, women or men or other who are very interested in Harajuku fashion and who wear it themselves. And you may have um, heard me before mentioning that, you know, for example, Western leaders are very different to Japanese leaders. Part of that adoration and admiration is not so much for feeling girly per se, um, it's also attached to these. Um, the sense of being close to Japan or the fantasy of Harajuku and what it's really like or this different girl who's brave and she's able to do whatever she wants and have the crazy hair and all that in Japan and I want to be like that. So um, often I find that, um, you know, girl culture has captured the imagination of a lot of people internationally but also it gets appropriated in interesting ways like international girl gang. So I'm talking about, um, you know, cute tattoos, um, some of the stickers on my laptop you might be able to see here are by um, artists in um, LA um, who combine um, imagery from um, you know anime or um, kawaii culture and then um, make it transgressive by adding you know subversive content so for example this bag I have by a girl um, young woman in LA um, it looks like a cute child's bag if you look closely it's actually got BDSM the little animals are acting out BDSM scenes so it's it they like to play with the idea of expectation and reality and turning this idea of cuteness on its head so cuteness is not just being infantile or cute um, sorry or childish it's actually quite playful tongue-in-cheek it's loud it's um yeah, it has no boundaries because you can get away with it it's cheeky. Masafumi? Mm. Um, I think one of the important points about shoujo in terms of studies or scholarship is um, it kind of located in between uh, space between child and adult women. And it's something that is kind of um, a little bit hard to locate in um, Anglophone studies about girl studies, for example. So there are a series of um, girl culture, like girl-oriented, for example, films that are targeted at girls uh, in English, but like people had a really trouble analyzing it. So if you think about Picnic at Hanging Rock, for example, it's a very... Um, almost like an embodiment of shoujo culture, but like men, not only a few people have ever analyzed it in terms of like girl culture, like girl food, for example. 
So um, I think it's um, and this kind of like um, cultural fictional text uh, in increase, uh, particularly after the 21st century. If you think about the young adult novels and like movies that are made based on these uh, novels, um, you get the idea. So um, using shoujo theories or short ideas about shoujo, um, it is very helpful to analyze these um, fictions that gives a kind of principality to um, adolescent girls and girl uh, characters. That's my take. And can I add to yes. that? I wanted to rewind, and, and this is something, this is kind of a pet project of ours, this idea that um, shoujo theory from Japan can be used to analyse non-Japanese texts like Picnic at Hanging Rock. Um, I'm looking at different retellings of Beauty and the Beast and particularly the way they imagine the beauty as a reader, a girl reader. Um, and the reason I think it, the theory has developed in this way um, and is particularly useful is because of the strong history of the interest in an appropriation of foreign stories in Japanese girls' culture. So I mentioned earlier that novels like um, uh, Anne of Green Gables and Little Women, um, in a different way, Alice in Wonderland, for example, have become kind of classic girls' texts in Japan. Um, and there are a few other examples. The, 19, the classic girls' manga of the 1970s um, are very... Europe oriented and have these kind of depictions of European princesses or Marie Antoinette um, and tea parties and castles and gothic images of Europe and roses and um, this kind of very strong European imagery uh, and Japanese theorists themselves in a strong tradition of a really wonderful kind of um, highly educated and widely read kind of practice are citing not only Japanese theorists, but of course they're importing ideas um, from other languages. Uh, Honda Masko, for example, when particularly when she's looking at things like um, these images of ephemeral girls in, in floating dresses like we see in Picnic at Hanging Rock, um, she's citing um, Gaston Bachelard on his philosophy, a French philosopher who talks about water. Um, she's citing political scientist Benedict Anderson's concept of imagined communities, um, as well as Japanese folk tales. Uh, so she brings in this huge range of theoretical and um, fictional texts. And for that reason, shoujo theory is very amenable to being used outside of Japan. And it's quite an exciting thing for us to do because you might not realise, but in Japanese studies academia, we always have academics using foreign theory to analyse Japan, mm -hmm. French philosophy or psychoanalysis, things that have developed outside of Japan, but very few people are bringing Japanese theory into non-Japanese texts. So we're really excited to think about that and to try to do it. So is there a difference between girl culture and shoujo culture, speaking of bringing the West and the Japanese terminologies into this, um, or can the two be used interchangeably? Who am I going to throw this question over? I'm going to go with oh. Emerald first oh. because you did not speak in the past topic. Oh, everything that I wanted to say had already been more eloquently presented than I could manage. Um, I think 
as, as, a, as a straight act of translation from Japanese language to English language, shoujo equals the girl. And I think when we're writing or presenting to a Japanese studies audience or an Asian studies audience, it's quite easy for us to use those terms interchangeably. But there is such a thing as girl studies, which at the moment is, um, it feels to me very much that the idea of the girl that they're talking about is a, a European or an Anglo girl, um, very much Alice, but Alice not in Wonderland, Alice in, in, in Europe. Um, but I've, I, I have this bizarre list of things that I think of when I think of, of girl culture, and it's surprisingly 90s, um, and it's surprisingly things like Joss Whedon feminism and Spice Girls girl power and, and um, the original DIC dub of Sailor Moon, um, <laughs> you know, um, Xena Warrior Princess, and, and also fairy tales, but fairy tales that have been reimagined. Um, again, it, it, it feels very 90s. Um, but when I think about shoujo, it's it again. I'm going back to hira hira and that soft lyrical chain and that kind of flowing rose petal motion. But I also like it to add in a, another onomatopoeic word, which happens to rhyme with hira hira, which is kira kira, which means something that's shiny or sparkly or you know. I think I think we've got some good some we've got some good kira kira on stage, um, which kind of modernizes it. So uh, for a lot of particularly anime and manga studies, when people talk about shoujo, they're going back to, uh, and shoujo anime and shoujo manga, they go straight to the 1970s, which was the first time that shoujo anime and shoujo manga was written by women writers and artists and aimed at girls. Prior to that, most anime and all manga was it was very much a, a male centric um, industry, and it was you know the shoujo at that point was a was more a readership um, and a targeted audience rather than a genre. So these women in the seventies they grew up reading these products, and then they wanted to to write their own stories and have their own experiences reflected in what they were reading. And a lot of shoujo studies kind of stops there. And it feels like a lot of girl culture um, or girl studies kind of stops at a certain point. And for us and for our work, using these two things interchangeably ties the two of them together and I think also allows it to be a, a present thing that is obviously happening right now. We just need to, to think about it in a more present way. So is that the same from the fashion perspective as well, do you think, with that whole idea of the girl and the shoujo being interchangeable? Um, that's a very good question, I think. Because in fashion, particularly in Japanese context, when um, like fashion styles that has really freely um, lacy kind of style or aesthetic, um, it still um, has a tendency to be described as a shoujo fashion rather than girl fashion. Although the word girly is also used to describe like a shoujo styles, particularly in, in young women's fashion magazines these days. So, for example, like Comme des Garçons and Reiko Kubo, which is a like high fashion um, design and um, label from Japan, recently um, launched uh, another label called Comme des Garçons Girl, and it has a really girlish 
um, aesthetic and like it was full of like uh, lace and frills and flower embroideries and the magazine, like a high fashion magazine called The Soul and still described the style as the embodiment of shoujo. So um, it's still, shoujo is kind of used to describe a particular sector or aesthetic that relates to girlishness. That's my understanding. I have to say that um, <laughs> um, there are women manga artists from the 1950s. So, yes. yeah. <laughs> this, this is why I work because he knows more than yeah. I do. <laughs> I actually, I, there was speaking, like going back to this idea of, of writing about shoujo culture and girl culture in, in English, I also want to point out that talking about girl has an added layer of complexity if we put it into Japanese as garu which is a whole mm. nother um, totally different style and, and aesthetic and feel, or may, maybe not as different. Mom, I'm just, uh, that was my thinking face, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I just look naturally threatening, apparently. Yeah. It's like ready to fight that comment. Uh, no, no, I'm all good. Um, there's gyaru, which describes particular um, fashion subgroups, and then there's also another lo- loan word, garu, which is also used to describe other looks. So there's kind of, yeah, quite a complex probably system of descriptions. I think so. And I think in general um, my encounters in the social science field whenever I use the word girl is a confusion about age. Um, in the West we very seem to be very, very fixated on compartmentalising, you know, um, child, adult, you know, teenage really only came through in the you know, 1960s with um, advertisements. That's what most um, subcultural studies from the UK in the 1960s and 70s found. Um, and in general, I think there's a confusion when you say girl or, or like, you know, Japanese Alice in Wonderland, they think little girl, not lady. So the word I tend to use a lot is lady or little lady. So, um, you know, or in the Western context, girly could also mean like girl, like riot girl. Um, so like coming back to girl power, I think girly feminism mostly came out in the 90s. That's probably why so many of your texts came through. Um, yeah, so I think it's – I think for me, my, my personal challenge, um, you know, in working in a feminist field is, is the confusion that comes through with, about the age and then that then leads to the confusion, oh, if you're doing girly, girly fashion, these people are trying to dress like little girls and it's no, 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 no. It's the idea of um, sort of being whimsical or playful um, but not in a childish sense. It's in a sense that anyone has the capacity to be at any age. So rather than just being like interchangeable, it, it's more that identity of what they're doing, what they're living, what they're practicing rather than you're a girl, you're a gyaru, you're a shoujo. That's right. It's a way of being and I think what they're trying to – you guys are trying to articulate with the different types of spellings and pronunciations of gyaru and gal and et cetera, et cetera. It's the different attitudes – behind it so um and i think part of gary adapting a westernized version of girl is to try and differentiate themselves from like the shoujo little demure lady it's like gary it's loud it's aggressive it's incredibly deviant delinquent and rude having an interview with some some of them it was a very colorful experience um yeah so it's such a diverse word and i think you the moral of the story is to be very clear in what you mean before you start talking about girls, yeah. Which is interesting because the next topic that I do want to bring up is that some critics are concerned about the gender roles that the shoujo embodies in Japan. 
What are your thoughts as academics on this perspective? Lucy, I think this goes to you this time. We went from that side, now it's this side. I've got so many things to say about this, I'm not <laughs> sure where to start. Um, when I look at the research on even just research that uses this key term, shoujo, not even more general girl studies, I do this really um, not very academic overgeneralizing thing where I, I tend to see it in, in two strands and I see the strand that I think these scholars are looking at girls from the outside in and these scholars are trying to look at girls from the inside out. Um, and what I mean by that, I suppose, well, to come back to Honda, <laughs> um, Honda's really famous hirahira essay on girlhood um, is written in this beautiful style where she tries to recollect her own girlish self and her experiences of girlhood at the same time as turning an academic scholarly eye um, on the texts that are emerging from this culture. Um, and there are a lot of dangers in terms of scholarship with using that personal approach, but I do appreciate it when I see other kind of strands of scholarship that often there are some that are very deliberately um, kind of anthropological in an old-fashioned way, so treating girls as a tribe or kind of group of strange natives that you need to describe and learn about and tell the world about in a kind of exoticizing way. Um, and for me, that perspective can lead to an oversimplified judgment that, for example, what girls are wearing or the images they're engaging with are they're objectifying and they're directed at the male gaze, they're girls trying to look attractive for men. Um, <laughs> to continue, um, on the other hand, I'm also a feminist uh, and so I do have trouble with things that seem to be very objectifying of women and be all about their physical attractiveness and their bodies. So it's, it's a real struggle and I wanted to just quickly bring up the example of Sailor Moon um, as a feminist and not a particular anime watcher when I was younger, um, I saw ads for Sailor Moon or bits of it and I thought, that just looks terrible. This is just stupid, cutesy bimbo girls in short skirts talking in stupid high voices. I'm never going to watch that show. I hate this aspect, this sexist aspect of Japanese popular culture. And I didn't watch it for years and years. And then I watched it. And it's a really funny, interesting show that is very much about adolescent um, girls' high school experiences and emotions and their friendships and connections. So while I still don't... I still have a problem with readings of things like Sailor Moon that purely view it as empowering, um, I, I really am glad that I took the time to look at that show from the inside out and think about it a bit more. Well, I think carrying on in that vein, I think there's two very different research approaches that um, Lucy here has highlighted. And I think one of the limitations of a structural approach to research, which means looking from the outside in, which um, has a very strong Marxist vein, is looking for political perfection in everything. 
And so, um, you know, if, if something doesn't fit someone's political ideals, suddenly it's not worthy of consumption or engagement anymore. And so um, a lot of feminists now are very interested in this consumption of ideology and this demand that we must consume at all times politically perfect texts. So um, my research in looking at um, kawaii fashion did find that, you know, if we're looking on the inside out, so I spent a lot of time with these girls talking to them about their personal experiences rather than objectifying them. And um, I found for a lot of them there was empowerment, but there was grief too. And there was feelings of not being enough or not being able to reach the goal that they wanted to be. There is a lot of um, focus on physical appearance. There can be instances of bullying. But this is like everything in the world and the world is not perfect. I think the idea that anything could be politically perfect is an abstract ideal that no one can prescribe to. And I think also um, through a subjective approach privileges, um, you know, fourth wave feminist intersectionality, which is that women of different races, genders, ages, uh, gender identification um, have their own way of making sense of the world. And we need to respect that diversity just because women don't prescribe to a particular Western idea of feminism doesn't mean they're not feminist. So I think it's a, a complex space. Um, and I think at the moment there's a lot of debates in Japan about women in general prescribing to um, kawaii as a gendered aesthetic to perform attractiveness for the male gaze or perform submissiveness. And I think it's overgeneralizing in general. And I think women, some in Japan hate kawaii and some of them love it. So I think it's going to be a, a evolving space where Japanese women figure out for themselves what they would like to do rather than outside people prescribing meaning onto them. Emeril, what is your perspective on that whole idea of the gender role as the shoujo? I think, um, wow, um, gosh, I've, I've, I'm just, I'm listening and, and I'm learning and, and, and uh, I think for the the shoujo, there's t- tradition, um, particularly from an Australian perspective, if we're looking at um, some very old-fashioned kind of images of of Australians looking at Japan or Europeans looking at Japan and you have these kind of set ideals of what a Japanese woman is and how she acts and what she's for Um, and sometimes those kind of ideas also go hand in hand with the shoujo particularly when we're looking at um, some of the clothing that's worn some of the clothing that people hear certain terms and they start to think that, okay, if, if a woman dresses in that way, then she's obviously asking for a certain thing or because she's dressed in a certain way, she's um, more accessible. Or um, and, and, I can, and I can only go to, to cosplay because admittedly that's more my field than street fashion, although I do work in kimono when it comes to street fashion. Um, there's a lot of research that's done on, on cosplay by people uh, on the outside looking in and trying to pin down what cosplayers are and what we do and why we do it. Uh, and it's all, apparently it's all about escapism and, and not wanting to grow up. And I can see parallel, parallels between those kind of things being placed on the capital T, Shorge or capital S, um, when she's viewed as an archetype or a trope as opposed to 
the way that we've been discussing it as a genre or as an aspiration or as a, a feel or a mood or an aesthetic. And so in some ways it all comes back to, to definition mm. and, uh, and really figuring out what we're trying to say before we say it, which I should have done before I started talking. <laughs> <laughs> Masa Fumi, do you have a perspective on that? Um, well, shoujo can be read as having two phases. The first one is the kind of ideal construction that was imposed by mainly men and the government. And the other one is this ideal construction of shoujo that, that are played and used to play and kind of create something different by girls themselves. So it kind of has a kind of a vehicle for them to um, express their uh, autonomy and agency. So I think it's kind of both a little bit, like kind mm. of difficult to say which one's for each. So it's a more nuanced kind of idea. I think both realities can exist simultaneously. The mm. girls themselves can think they're doing one thing and someone looking at them on the outside can say, well, actually, you're this. Mm. The yeah. question is who gets to decide, which is true. Yeah, I mean, if, if there's someone looking at a girl and saying, wow, she's so objectified, look at her body, congratulations, you've objectified her. Yes. I mean, <laughs> from the opposite perspective, it could be the girl just saying, I'm empowered by how I look, I'm choosing this, I'm not doing it for your sake, I'm doing it for my sake. Yeah, although... Um, Definitely, and that's so important. But I would also identify that as the trap of mm. 1990s girl power in particular, yeah. where um, women, girls and women are supposed to not only be attractive and enjoy being attractive and buying the objects that make them attractive, but they're supposed to pretend that it's entirely about being attractive to empower themselves and it's all their own decision and they want to look good because it makes them feel good and you're supposed to kind of deny that it's about being attractive to other people. So I think there's a bit of a, a trap in that particular um, brand of feminism. Um, that's yeah. why we have fourth wave. That's why we need fourth wave. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs>